Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer. This episode of Staffer is different from all of the previous episodes because the person who I really want to talk with is not here. Dan Turton passed away on Tuesday, January 9th. He was 56. This show is about people who work in government or politics, and Dan was the ultimate staffer, a Hall of Famer, best of the best, beloved by everyone who got to know him, serve with him, or rely on him. Dan was one of the first people I got to know when I got my first job in the House of Representatives. Over the ensuing 25 years, I got to work with him and for him many times. He was a colleague, a mentor, a boss, a client, a friend, and importantly, he was an example. He did what so many of us staffers hope to do. With hard work and sharp mind, he operated at the highest levels of power to affect lasting change for the country, and along the way, he treated every single person well. At his memorial service, which was held at Union Station, there were hundreds of people, Democrats and Republicans, older people and younger people, fellow staffers and current and former members of Congress, including former Speaker Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, Jim McGovern, and many others. A message was read that was sent by the President of the United States. Dan was so much more than his professional bio, but let me start there so people know what he contributed to the country. He was, as described in a eulogy delivered by Don Sisson at his memorial service, a son of the House of Representatives. And that he was. He loved the House, and he took every opportunity to remind Senate staffers why the House was better than the Senate. If you want to see Don's eulogy, which I highly recommend, it's posted to the Staffer Show website. Dan worked for then-minority leader Dick Gephardt for many years, eventually rising to floor director. And after a brief stint in the private sector at the lobbying firm Timmins & Company, Dan returned to be the majority staff director of the House Rules Committee. The Rules Committee was a home for Dan. He returned years later when they asked him to serve as a senior advisor to the new ranking member. When President Obama won in 2008, he asked Dan to run the House team in the Office of Legislative Affairs. It was during that first term that I got to report to Dan as my boss, a personal and professional gift that I cherished then and I cherish now. I am not exaggerating when I say that Dan Turton was an integral part of President Obama's legislative accomplishments during his first two years. One of them, the Affordable Care Act, had so many twists and turns where Dan was the man in the moment, listening to members, responding effectively, contributing to smart strategy back at the White House, bringing the right person to the conversation at the right time, and sometimes not responding when others wanted to charge in ham-fisted. He was such a capable and deft staffer, it's hard to put into words. One moment I remember was on the very day that the House passed the Senate-passed version of uh, the bill, which was in March 2010. We still didn't have the votes all locked up yet. One of the blocks of votes that needed to be won over were pro-life Democrats who were unhappy with the language in the Senate bill. In a small room in the Capitol at the 11th hour and with everything hanging in the balance, Dan helped negotiate an executive order that satisfied their concerns without tipping the balance to a point that would have lost other votes from pro-choice Democrats. It was high stakes and demanded the utmost in delicacy and diplomacy. It also demanded a great deal of trust, and the members with whom Dan was negotiating knew Dan and trusted him. 
And it was just one time in his career where he, uniquely, he, was what we needed. There were other moments like that. Many of the people you will hear from today were people who knew Dan from his White House days. For me, he was such a great boss. He taught me so much about the house, an institution that I thought I knew. He made me better in every way, as a listener, as a thinker, as a doer. He made everyone around him better. One of the things I remember about him was how he always made time for anyone and everyone. After the White House, Dan had a very successful career in the private sector. He was asked to run the Washington offices of companies like Entergy, General Motors, and most recently, Tyson Foods. Anyone who was lucky enough to cross paths with Dan during his career can tell you that he was unique. He was optimistic while also being a canny political realist about what motivates elected officials and how specific people react and what they may need to hear and when and from whom. He was intensely loyal to his friends and professional family. He was generous with his time and expertise. He counseled hundreds of people, including me, when they were looking for jobs. He was so wise with his advice. He epitomized the mentorship that is so often celebrated on this podcast. He was hardworking. I'm going to steal from Don Sisson again because he observed that it was like there were two Dan turns. He was everywhere. He had a motor, and it was nonstop. And I would be remiss if I did not mention Dan's sense of humor. He had a rapier wit. He was so quick and hilarious and had perfect comedic timing and delivery. He also had this great laugh that would turn into a high-pitched giggle when he got really going. And oh my gosh, he hated pomposity. He was so good at both delivering a compliment but also making sure it didn't go to your head because he would burst your bubble and make you laugh as you moved on to the next assignment if you did. Dan's life, however, was not without tragedy. In passing, he leaves behind his beloved wife, Bree, and five beautiful children. He lived through the death of his first wife, Ashley Turton, a staffer in her own right. One of Dan's sons spoke at the memorial service and shared advice that Dan had given to him when his mother, Ashley, had passed away. Dan said, It's okay to mourn and be sad, but be careful not to live in sadness, because a life lived in sadness is a life wasted. That was Dan. I think he would appreciate this episode, but I also think he'd probably make a crack and tell me I was laying it on a little thick. In that, he would be wrong. So normally I end these episodes by saying that I hope you enjoy them, but instead I'm going to say that I hope you do some other things. First, I hope that you will consider making a donation to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, which is dedicated to finding a cure to type 1 diabetes a condition that Dan struggled with starting in his 20s and led to his cause of death. And second, I hope you try to be a little like Dan. One, be generous with your time and expertise. Give it freely to people who ask. Two, make a difference. Dedicate your time and energies to causes that matter to you. And three, stick together. Professional families do not replace families. No one knew that more than Dan but they can be sources of incredible friendship and support. The last time I saw Dan was this past November in Chicago, when the large Obama family had a reunion on the 15th anniversary of the 2008 election. The night before the full reunion, the Office of Legislative Affairs had a mini-reunion for all of the people who worked in that component of the White House over the course of the administration. We had a blast. It was so much fun sharing memories, swapping stories, and making each other laugh. One of the things Dan said repeatedly was, why are we only doing this now? 
We should be gathering every quarter. He was right. We left the reunion pledging to one another that we'd be better and we'd get together once per quarter. We're actually going to do it now. I really wish we had done it sooner. I have a feeling, at the first such gathering about Dan, we'll do what we did at his memorial. We'll tell stories and shed a few tears and remember our good friend and mentor. That's what today's episode is all about. I asked people who knew and loved Dan to share their stories and remembrances. There were many, many, many more people who would have loved to do this than I could possibly ask or possibly fit into this episode. Each conversation could last hours. But what I have to you is just a selection. I'll let them introduce themselves now. My name's Johannes Abraham, and I was lucky enough to work for Dan at the beginning of the Obama administration when he ran House Legislative Affairs, the, the White House's outreach to the House of Representatives. My name is Lauren Beliv, and I work in Washington, D.C., and I met Dan. I was 25 years old. I think he was 40 at the time, which I'm 40 now, and so that's a big impression and impact on me on the impacts that I can now be having on people's lives. But we met on the Obama-Biden transition team and then worked subsequently together in the White House. My name is Phil Shalero, and I worked with Dan in the House for many years, and then in the White House with President Obama. I'm John Samuels, a longtime friend and colleague of Dan Turton. We met as colleagues on Capitol Hill back in 1999 and worked together for several years on the Hill and in the Obama White House. I'm currently a partner with the Vistria Group, which is a private investment firm in Chicago. My name is Michael Hacker. I've been in Washington since the spring of 1997. I met Dan Turton uh, that spring. We're instant friends. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, share some uh, memories about our relationship uh, uh, professionally and personally. My name is Chantel Tolliver, and I was one of Dan's executive assistants at General Motors. So I'm Shelley O'Neill Stoneman. I currently run Government Affairs at Lockheed Martin and have the pleasure of working with and for Dan Turton during... 2000 and I guess end of 08 to middle of 2011 while we were at the White House Office of Legislative Affairs and during the presidential transition. I'm Nancy Ann DeParle and I worked in the White House on the Affordable Care Act alongside Dan and a lot of his colleagues on the Ledge Affairs team. My name is Sean Sweeney and I worked with Dan in the House of Representatives and in the White House and prior to that was a longtime admirer of his celebrity, and we remained uh, friends after that. So my name's Jason Rosenstock. I'm a partner at a lobbying firm downtown called Thorn Run Partners. Uh, I used to work on the Hill as a staffer for a congressman named Tom Lantos, and I met Dan as a young staffer. My name is Andy York. I have, have spent the past couple of years as vice president of government affairs at Tyson Foods. Dan was my boss, both at Tyson Foods and Previously, he also hired me when I was a, a wee little lobbyist back in the day, getting my start in the private sector in 2015 at General Motors. So this is, this is actually my second tour of duty, and it has been a highly entertaining ride from day one all the way until the very end. I am Nicole Isaac, and I 
got to know Dan during our time together working in the White House when he was in White House Ledge Affairs and I started in the Vice President's Ledge Affairs team. I'm Jay Heimbach. I've been working in Washington for 30 years now, and I don't remember how I met Dan or where I met Dan, but I worked the closest with him during the first two and a half years of the first Obama term when he was the House liaison and I worked on the Senate side, which he endlessly gave me a lot of shit for. But but and then we've been friends before that, we're dear friends after that, and worked together in some other capacities as well. Don Sisson, I'm, I worked for Dan. That's how I met him originally was as an employee, but that quickly became lifelong friendship. So we worked together for a few years. We ended up being neighbors one block apart. And like I said, dear close friends, and especially in these last few years through through COVID, and I just feel like I've grown even closer to them. As you listen to the stories that follow, know that we've divided this episode into thematic sections. The first section is about Dan as a person and the type of character he showed over the length of his long career. So I guess the thing I'd like to talk about today is the thing that like woke me up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. after I gave the speech. The thing I wish I'd said, as we, this service was at Union Station, it was a huge venue and it was filled with Dan's friends and colleagues. It was standing room only, hundreds and hundreds of people. It was filled with dignitaries too. I don't know if you saw the former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi was there, uh, representatives Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, Jim McGovern, so many other members past and present. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough was there. Obama's last chief of staff. Uh, so this crowd, it was like a who's who in Washington. And yeah, the thing that, that really, again, it bothered me that I didn't say, that I wish I would have looked at this big crowd and said, raise your hand if Dan ever helped you. If he ever helped you find a job, solve a problem. You're just, that gave you some advice that you couldn't have gotten anywhere else. As Jim, you and I both know that 90% plus of that crowd would have raised their hand. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and at that, least one hand, maybe two least, hands. And at least one. And in that moment, I could have said to Dan's family and his children in particular, look at this beautiful thing. That's what a, that's what a life of service to your fellow man looks like. Whenever you hear the phrase, love your neighbor, think of this moment. And I'll make no mistake, that man touched more lives than anyone I've ever known. And he did it quietly. I think basically everyone who knows Dan has some pretty incredible stories about him that run the gamut from inspiring to funny and everything in between. Probably the story that sticks out the most in my mind for my time working for him was the night that the House of Representatives passed the Affordable Care Act. And the night of the vote, we all drove up to the Capitol and ahead of the vote. And we had our whip count and we knew this was a singular night in Dan's career because he was so instrumental to getting this massive thing done. And I say that very specifically, one, because he deserves a lot of credit for what was a huge cornerstone legislative success of the Obama administration, but two, because it's important context for the rest of this story. So we drive up to the Capitol, the vote happens, a huge moment, we all get in our various cars, I drive back with Dan to go back to the White House. And waiting for us at the White House 
and obviously folks at the White House were watching the vote closely. And so the celebration began before any of us actually got back. And very graciously, the president hosted a, a group of White House staffers, as you'll remember, for a very special, essentially thank you party hosted by him for those who had worked on passage of the Affordable Care Act. And the party was well underway by the time we got there because of the lag time between the vote and when we were actually able to get back to the White House. And the, the, I remember this so clearly. It's a fool's errand to rack and stack and rank who deserves credit for the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Any analysis of who does would have Dan really high on that list and would have me really low on the list, <laughs> suffice to say. <laughs> Extremely, you know, this is not false modesty. Have me, I wouldn't even. <laughs> I was we can agree that Dan is high on the list. <laughs> <laughs> but that is also relevant to this story because I remember we he parks his car, he drove, he parks his car and a bunch of the rest of us on the team parked right around the same time and we start walking into the White House from the East Wing and we start walking to where the gathering was and we can hear people celebrating and we all quicken our pace as you do when you hear a party in the distance that you'd like to be a part of. And as we start getting closer to where the president and everyone else is, I linger back a little bit and it was really out of the respect for the fact that I'm walking in with Dan and this was his moment. And this was a moment where he rightfully was about to be lifted up and rightfully was about to be recognized for massive contribution to this effort and I just I wanted to give him space and it's just I didn't think about it just a natural inclination to to give him some space and some spotlight and I'll always remember he turned back and said no you're walking in with me come on Mm -hmm. and I know that maybe to some folks listening that seems like a small thing but it said so much about him that at this this moment of per, both personal and professional celebration after an incredibly hard-fought effort, when most people would basically be focused up the chain in thinking about who they wanted to celebrate with and who they wanted to wrap their arms around and grab a picture with, including the president who was waiting, literally hosting us, it was just instinctive to Dan to look down the chain and bring me into that moment of walking in. It meant the world to me then. And I think more importantly, again, it's highly illustrative of who he was. And I suspect a lot of people listening who knew Dan will find this story very resonant because it will rhyme with their own experiences with him, with his generosity of spirit, with his deep commitment to mentoring and developing those around him and with the fact that he was just a great guy. And I also told the story because, and I mentioned this at the top, I just think it's important to note how big a part he played in something that was so consequential, not just for the Obama administration, but for the country writ large. What a perfect story of capturing, you're right, such important elements of Dan his contributions to something really important. And perhaps, as it was said in his memorial service, the thing he was most proud of accomplishing. And in that moment, not taking that glimpse of spotlight just for himself. 
Yes. Right. When he walked through the threshold of that door, everyone was waiting to applaud the guy who like was the president's representative to the House of Representatives for what the House just did. And his instinct was to look over his shoulder, grab you and make sure you were walking in together. And it was such a joy to be a part of that team. And so much of that emanated from him, from the fact that we all were learning. Yes. And from the fact that when I reflect on Dan, I think one of the extraordinary things about him is that he had a lot of qualities that in and of themselves would be rare to find in people, but are extraordinarily rare to find existing in the same person. So you have someone who unparalleled work ethic, just a motor that never stopped. At a moment in time and in a job where it required that, he had that one. Two, he had the respect of the entire team and really everybody who dealt with him. At the same time, he had this approachability and ability to make what was really serious, hard, difficult work over long hours feel light and fun and have a very an organization that is with good reason, hierarchical, feel very flat and familial. And, and this just tremendous, both analytical capacity and also just gut instinct that all married up into being a joy to be around. You're so right in that I think you're, I really take to heart what you said about the joy that we all experienced during that time. That wasn't a given. Yes. It, sure, it's very, it's heady to work in the White House and it was an important time, et cetera. It could have sucked. If we had a boss who yelled at us every day, there were plenty of pressures. We were all exhausted. He made it fun with yes. his humor, with yes. the way he treated us as humans and as peers, even though he was our boss, and the way he would, like, when things got really tough and sometimes you just don't know what to do, he was like the quarterback in the huddle who would just call the next play. And yes. you're like, I got it. I yes. got it. And that direction was just so damn helpful. Yes. So well said, and I'm going to, I'm going to further, I'm, I might jump the shark with the analogy, but I love the quarterback description of him. And he had the Joe Montana, Hey, is that John Candy ability to just lighten the mood before? Yes. Call play. yes, absolutely. I think he once left you a particular gift. In your desk. <laughs> so, so there's multiple ways to tell this story. I'm going to choose to tell it the very short way because I think it's just, it has just as much impact. Dan engaged in banter with the whole team. And I forget what I said, but something I said over the course of some, uh, <laughs> some banter session precipitated him placing an entire plate of smoked salmon uh, in a portion of my desk that was really hard to actually access. And he did so knowing that I had left for a wedding and, and would be gone for a couple of days, a rare reprieve from that first year sprint. Such that, but and then upon my return, when I noticed something was amiss with the general condition of my workspace, he, he gaslit me as I was asking him if he was noticing anything in the in the air. And I and again, just a story that, that I I think tell is both amusing on its face and funny on its face, but tells a deeper 
truth about Dan, which is, again, he had the a massive load on his shoulders, a massive weight. The success or failure of a consequential president's most consequen- consequential sprint upon entering office, so much of that rested on his shoulders. And again, in the midst of executing that duty with so much skill and so much success, he had the bandwidth to be hilarious. Yeah. And it was a way of him caring for us. Yes, it really was. I never thought that putting a plate of smoked salmon in my desk (laughs) would, I never realized. Okay, maybe not that. No, no, I never (laughs) affection that could signal, but it really did. It was, and we all had a laugh about it after I fumigated the desk. (laughs) Switched to a standing desk with no drawers for my own safety. We all had a laugh about it, and it was one of the ways in which he knit us into the unit that we were. To me, Washington, D.C. is a very hard place to find a mentor. And I wouldn't say that Dan was my mentor, but I know that he was my champion. And I think it's even harder to find a champion than a mentor in a lot of ways. And I look at the course of my career, and he directly inspired me just by being himself and who he was. When I looked at him, I said, I want to be like that guy. And and then he actually was very much in the trenches with me along the whole way of my career. And Dan, just from when you think about him, you think of him as someone who is very earnest, someone who's very pragmatic, someone who is in the trenches with you. He's a player coach, very easy to talk to and very easy to become friends with. And, and so along the way, it was something to me that was very important. When I started at the, in the White House, a lot of it was just looking at how he operated, right? And looking at how he was driven to have tangible results, driven for success. And I saw him in this government lens. And when I was getting ready to go on to the next thing, we started having conversations. And when it was with Dan, it wasn't just, oh, I'll help you. I'll send your resume here and I'll do this. It really was, okay, let's think about what does your future look like? And that's where the idea of the House Rules Committee came in. He said, this isn't the most glamorous job, but if you're going to want to have a career in Washington, D.C., you're going to really need to understand how this place works. And if you know the rules, you're going to know how to use them to your advantage forever. And that was a really interesting for, at the time, a 28-year-old woman, right, to think I'm in this very glamorous job right now from a perspective I can go to these cocktail parties and say, I look, I work at the White House. People say, oh, and then the shift of, I work at the House Rules Committee, there was this level, but Dan and I really had this deep understanding of what it meant. And for him, he said, look, Lauren, you're going to grow an an incredible network. You're going to learn a new skill and you're really going to go up in a level. And all of those things set me on a path on how to think about my future. And of all the jobs I've had, it really was the Rules Committee that made the biggest impact. I thought I was going to be there for one year, and I actually ended up staying almost four years. The people were fabulous, but I really did learn. And to this day, I work on the corporate side now. It is something where I take the skills that I learned. And I did that because of Dan. And it's funny, in democratic circles, not a lot of us go in-house to companies. And so when I was thinking about looking at the people who had the jobs I wanted, Dan was always there. Like Dan was at the forefront. And I was like, you know what? This is it. I want to be him. I want to do what he's doing. And I've said so much to him in different iterations. 
And after I found my way to Lyft, I think that was one of the first jobs I took an independent step to. And I was so lucky because Lyft, once I got there, started a relationship with General Motors. And so Dan was on the other side. And I think both of us were just relieved we had someone else in the room that that could be a trusted ally to both of us. And it brought out a lot of, at least for me, a lot of street cred to know that I knew Dan Turton <laughs> on the business perspective of things. And so with that relationship, we started to have another working relationship as well, which was fabulous. And as I was growing in that job, I was able to become the head of the federal office. And I remember Dan and I, we I think we got a coffee and we were talking and he said, probably one of the most poignant pieces of advice to me that I've ever experienced. And he said, don't get too good at your job. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, you're going to be promoted into a corner if you become too good at head of federal. No one wants to be head of federal. You want to think bigger. You need to see the kingdom. And that, I took a step back and I said, what do I really want to do? How, where do I want to see myself go and grow? And I think that was probably one of the best things that Dan Turton ever said to me. And so after about six years at Lyft, I made a decision to try to find a bigger platform for myself because of that guidance. He did have a rare ability to have perspective on things that even his peers and right and people who are very good at in this town, he was able to have insights that that weren't obvious, I guess is the way I would put it. Yeah. That's why and he was so forthcoming with them in a town where sometimes people hide the knowledge that they have and use it to their benefit. He was so generous in sharing that with people Yes, for their and betterment. He would look you right in the eye and he would be so direct with it too. And it would be, there would, it would be a foregone conclusion, right? Like, of course, of course, this is the way. And it's funny. I think Dan and I always look to him too, because when you work in-house for businesses, it's a little bit of a different prerogative. And it's in an interesting world where you could be affected by layoffs, you could be affected by which way the bottom line goes. Very different than working in government. And I've had wonderful moments in my career. I've also had some dark moments in my career. And Dan has always been my first phone call for those things. And it was this notion, it's like if you're trapped in a pit, right, and you're calling out for help, and someone walks by, and they jump in the pit, and then you say to them, why did you, why are, now we're both stuck in here. And then he would say, but I know the way out. And so that was the Dan Turton relationship that I had too, which was fabulous. In DC, look, we all love a lot about the town and have made great friends who are like family there. There's an element in DC, some folks that don't give a hundred percent of themselves or hold back a little of the info because info is power in that town. And that was just never him. He's, oh yeah, man, yeah, here's what you got to do. Whatever it was, here's how you get the job. Even if it was a great job that maybe sounded great to him, 1,000% generous and open, no ego, laugh at himself about a mistake he made if it was a way that he could help you learn or avoid that mistake. It was like he accelerated that growth for a lot of us because he was a little further down the path. And he was happy to, to kind of share that learning, but was so generous and and just also to your point about the humor, just like brought a lightness to all of it, even when it was stressful. Yeah. I mean, there's funny and serious. So in terms of like how to succeed in Washington, he made it look easy, but he worked really hard. He got up early. He read all the stuff. 
back when we were reading that stuff in print, all the rags. I mean, even when you and I were reading stuff online, he still read it in print. Let's be honest. Though. <laughs> That's right. And we would tease him about it, walking around with a print newspaper or what have you. But he really did his homework. He knew the issues. If he didn't have enough depth on an issue, he wasn't afraid to raise his hand and ask that question or seek out the person who did, and then, and, the, and then to empower the person who did. I think he really respected everybody. He was unapologetic about being a Democrat and embracing what that meant, but was really respectful of Republicans. He was a really bipartisan, nonpartisan guy when it came to that human interaction, which I think is something we need to try to reclaim in D.C. and beyond. But he did work hard. No BS, no ego, really focused on what was important, really understood and respected what made people tick and what was important to them. He, he did think it was important to have fun. Did believe in accountability. It's not like he just patted everybody on the back. He did expect a lot of everybody around him, and we all we all held ourselves to high standards, but he expected that. But he showed up, he hustled, he stayed humble, he did his homework, he respected relationships, he was kind, he was direct, he was authentic. He was approachable, self-aware, self-critical, really always pushed himself and everyone around him, inspired everyone around him to get better. He was open to changing the plan when it wasn't working. He was really good at leveraging and empowering a team. I think while anyone who knows Dan, and I do myself, have many lighthearted moments with him, the story and the memory I have that was most meaningful to me, really as a woman, as a then mother-to-be and a manager, happened during my job offer to join the Obama White House. As presidential transitions are essentially an audition period for a lot of these roles, while some individuals do just step in temporarily to help and then return to their day job, for me, it was a chance to prove myself to the White House Legislative Affairs leadership team. So we were given our assignments on our first day, which was contacting a certain number of member offices on behalf of the transition team within a short time period. I really pushed myself to get it all done in the fastest and most professional way possible. However, most of my colleagues at that time did not know of a deeply personal family development that had unexpectedly arisen. I found out that I was expecting our first child four days after I started on the transition team. I was at that time suffering very hard from morning sickness or in my case, all day sickness, but I didn't wanna miss the opportunity to compete for my dream job. I ended up delivering on all my commitments despite a lot of nausea and sickness, but I even helped some other colleagues deliver on theirs too. I was just very gung-ho about proving myself. And finally the day came I was called in to learn if I would be asked to stay on with the administration. I sat down with Dan and another member of the leadership team, and they offered me a job. They offered me the job, and I joyously accepted. And then I decided that, as a courtesy, I wanted to disclose my pregnancy status, even though it was still early days and we hadn't told our families yet. I was really nervous about doing so. But I didn't want to surprise anyone later on as my condition became evident. So I felt, for me, it was the right thing to do. And as soon as I revealed the news, I got two responses that I will never forget. The other attendee paused and said, are you sure you've really thought this through? But Tan immediately smiled, looked me straight in the eye and said, congratulations, you will be amazing. No second guessing, 
just utterly confident in my ability to do that. And this is because his wife, who was also a hard-charging lobbyist, was expecting as well. And he knew that pregnancy wasn't a disability and wouldn't slow down a determined team member who was prepared to deliver on those commitments. In that moment, I will never forget how supported and seen I felt. I remember thinking how grateful I was to get to work with someone like that and how I need to always remember and to be sure and pass on that kind of leadership for people that I would get to work with in the future. And that, so that moment has really stuck with me. I can remember exactly where I was sitting and how I felt when he said that. So that was probably my most memorable moment with Dan Turton. I think he was probably the most down-to-earth, like, legendary staffer that you ever met. He knew everyone is all too well. He knew everyone in the House, members, staff, lobbyists. He contributed to changing history and improving lives of Americans time and time again. And yet he always made you feel like connecting with you was the most important thing on his mind. He was such a terrific boss, mentor, not just to me and you, thousands, I think, and friend. And during that entire time that we worked together, he was a, just a boss and an ally and a sounding board. But then, of course, for all of us, I think after we left, he remained such an important part of our lives. Always happy to meet, loved giving career advice to anyone and everyone, and talking about our kids. And the fact that we had one of his five children and my eldest were the same, basically the same age and in the same grade at school. And so even just being able to see him in the, through the parent lens at school events and, you know, back to school night with teachers and everything, that was just, he was just such a good human on all levels. But people who walk by him every day on the street have no idea what that man did and his professional career that contributed to changing their lives. One thing I thought that was always unique about Dan was like, you could be in the middle of having a great time and he'd stop, he'd look at his watch and say, yeah, I got to get home to my kids. And and there are so many folks around town that just, they wouldn't just stop everything and put their family first. And he wasn't only like that with his kids though, he was like that with his friends. I remember like when I came out of the White House, and went into lobbying and political consulting, Dan called and was like, look, I want to give you your first contract. And he walked me through how to do it and taught me everything I needed to know. And then made space for me at a table that he was setting. And, And he was just this guy that he always had kind of other people in mind. And he was probably for someone who works in a business or worked in a business that's filled with transactions, he was probably like the least transactional person that I've, that I've known. Yeah, you're right. He was always mindful of what other people were going through. One of the skills that I really learned from him was listening. He could really just listen and not either encourage or discourage what you were saying. He'd let you speak the whole thing. And then he would engage and give you like his candid feedback. And it made him really good at seeing and understanding what other people were experiencing, both in politics and outside of politics, as you just described. Yeah. It, uh, and the fact that he could do that with this just great, unbelievable sense of humor and wit. I honestly can't remember a time that I didn't leave laughing. And and usually the joke made at my expense and <laughs> inevitably, deservedly, at just this kind of quick wit withering thing where you're like, wow, that was 
Well played, Mr. Turton. Well you played. are so right. You are so right. How many, like, of all the conversations and engagements that we've had, like, undoubtedly, the vast majority of them, we were laughing when we said goodbye. You and I both got to see Dan a few months ago when the, the broader Obama family had a 15-year reunion celebrating President Obama's 2008 election. And we had lunch one day. Can you talk to us about that experience? I can because I was a hard no on the whole thing. I kept saying no, and Sean Sweeney finally said, we're going to have this lunch, and Lauren's going to be there, Jim Papa's going to be there, Nick's going to be there, Nick Papa's, and I started the crack open, okay, maybe I'll come. And I'm so glad I did. And I told Phil Shalero later, who unfortunately had to miss it, there were several thousand people at the entire event. And I saw a lot of people. I loved seeing them. But the highlight of the whole thing for me was seeing Dan. And the reason was because he seemed so happy. And I had last seen him a number of years before. And of course, remember in the winter of 2010 when his first wife passed away and then seeing him in the hallways and he was really under a lot of stress and you could tell it in his eyes he didn't have the light in his eyes and when I saw him in October he had that again and as we were leaving I gave him a hug and I said I love you and later I felt embarrassed about that I told Lauren mm. I can't believe I said that that's a weird thing to say to someone when you haven't seen them in a long time but it just felt like how I felt. I loved him. I loved Dan just for someone who was so warm, so funny, so smart, never never cynical despite his many years of advocacy on Capitol Hill. I loved him. Maybe just to give you a little bit of context, perhaps come at this from a slightly different place than many others because I did not know Dan in the early days, back when he worked in the House of Representatives, even when he was in the Obama White House. I didn't know him. I was a Senate guy. And so there just wasn't a lot of interaction between where I was in the Senate, between Dan and the positions he held in the House and in the White House. So I really didn't know him at all until he left the White House and went to the private sector where he worked for Entergy, which as I worked for an Arkansas member of Congress in Entergy's service sector includes Arkansas. And so I got to know him a little bit when he was at Entergy. That was really when I first met him, even though I couldn't tell you exactly when that occurred, but because we didn't interact a ton even then for reasons that I'll talk about later that demonstrate the kind of person that he was. But really when I got to know him was when I started going through the job application process at General Motors. And I was in a point in my life where I was unemployed and nothing motivates a job seeker like someone who doesn't currently have a job. We had lost our reelection in 2014. I was looking for opportunities in the private sector, essentially because my wife told me that I was forbidden to go back and work for the government again. So as I was looking through the private sector, I just happened to run into Dan at a, at a restaurant in DC during lunch. And he just kind of looked at me and said, hey, why don't, you, why don't you give me a call? And at the time, I had been trying to help our Senate staff find jobs, and I thought that Dan was interested in hiring one of our, one of our staffers. And so, of course, I said, absolutely, I'll call you as soon as, I, as soon as I finish this lunch and get back home. And I gave him a call. He asked me to come into his office at GM and talk to him, which I did. 
And I walked in the door and I sat down with him and it was, I'll never forget it, it was maybe a five minute long conversation at most. And he sat down with me, he looked at me across the table and he said, here's the deal. I've got this opening. This is about what it pays. This is what you're gonna do. Let me know if you're interested. Sleep on it other night, overnight. Otherwise, don't waste my time. <laughs> and I was, I, at this point, I had probably interviewed with seven or eight other entities where I was six, seven, eight interviews into the process and had no idea what the job was, how much it paid, <laughs> or any of those details. And here's this guy who sits down with me and immediately just goes directly to the point, don't waste my time, here's what it is. And of course, that is a characteristic of Dan that we all know and love very well is his incredible directness. And from that day forward, it, and it can hit you abruptly if you're not used to that style. But over the years, it was one of the, it was one of Dan's qualities in the workplace that I appreciated more than anything else was his incredible ability to just be directed to make the most efficient use out of his time. And I've never, to this day, I have yet to find anyone who does it as well as he did. So a word that hasn't been used yet in some of these conversations, but like you are really bringing up to mind was he was a great teacher. Like he was my boss in the White House. He was my client twice at General Motors and at Tyson Foods. And he taught me in every one of those jobs how to do my job better. Yeah. And it wasn't in a corrective sort of way or a he wasn't laying bad news on me. He was coaching. Yeah. He's so well, good and, at it. And the great thing about it, too, is that it was never a moment where he sat down with you and said, Jim, I'm mentoring you now. It wasn't <laughs> like, yeah. it was coaching that you received and you knew that you were getting it. This is what we like to call the Dan. And the Dan was, it was a noun, it was a state of being. It was almost like if you think back to LBJ and LBJ had the treatment, right? Yeah. Along those lines, the Dan. And like you said, it was a method of coaching that sometimes involved admonishments and reprimands, but also mixed with praise and encouragement and then mixed in with a little bit of self-blame. Always. Yeah. It was one of the things that I appreciated about him the most as, as a boss was that Dan, of course, always wanted to share in our successes, but he also wanted to share in the failures. And mm. you know that ability as a boss to be able to take on your shoulders, not just successes, but also failures, so that as the employee, you felt like you didn't have to shoulder all of that responsibility yourself, that there was somebody who was in your corner who was going to be fighting for you that was willing, even if it wasn't their fault at all. And oftentimes I had screw ups that had not one single thing to do with Dan, but he would always find a way to reflect back on something that maybe he could have done better that might've prevented that, even though he didn't have anything to do with it. It was just, it was a way of showing togetherness. I think with the people that he supervised that I always greatly appreciated. So yeah. well put. So well put. He definitely protected, he protected his people from too much blame. Like he, to your point, he would absolutely step in and shoulder that and he would set us up for success. Yep. Right. If you had a moment, if it was meeting with chief counsel of the company, he would say, here's what he wants to hear. Here's what he's going to ask. 
you should you should make sure you hit these points and your presentation should be no longer than X or Y. And the same directness that he gave you with that job offer, he would give you in advance of a big moment for you so you can right. succeed. That's right. And beyond that, just the willingness to give you that platform. Dan always, I felt like he always put my interests above his own because he truly wanted to see you shine. He wanted to see you succeed. He believed that the success of his team reflected well on himself and upon the entire organization. So it wasn't, for him, it wasn't about me. It was about how do we all succeed together? And his view of that was letting my people succeed, leading my people to succeed, coaching them on how to succeed reflects well on on all of us. And, and Dan was wonderful about giving us junior lobbyists in the office the opportunity, it, which doesn't happen that often in corporate America, to present in front of groups in the company, to brief senior executives, to staff the CEO when they came to town, to do things that you don't get to do at every company. Dan always provided those opportunities. And that was true at GM, and it's certainly true at Tyson as well, where you know, he didn't always have to be the one getting the attention and the glory. He wanted his staff to get the attention and the glory. And as you very correctly point out, would set us all up for success in the process of doing that. And I'll give you a great example of a coaching moment. And this was a really poignant story for me early in my lobbying career. Dan had, he had hired me at GM. He had taken a chance on this guy who had never lobbied before, never worked for a corporate entity before. And I got into the role and boy, I was motivated to deliver. I wanted to show this guy that I was going to be good, that I knew what I was doing, that I was going to, that I was going to get wins for the company, that I was going to drive value to the bottom line, that I was, I was motivated. And, you know, oft, as, as oftentimes corporate lobbyists do, we're walking around town, we're the big corporate lobbyists, we're in charge of everything. And we have trade associations and we have consultants. And sometimes we want these people to do things that might be helpful to us. Sometimes others have different opinions and there are slight disagreements and perhaps a trade of doing exactly what you want them to do. So in my case, I've removed all the names for confidentiality purposes, but we'll just say that there was a trade association that wasn't exactly doing what I wanted them to do. And here I am, new guy. I got to deliver. I got to show this guy that he made the right pick. I'm just going to bully my way through this trade association, and I'm going to get them to do what we need them to do. And I called that trade association, and I I let them have it. I gave them what for. I probably made all sorts of threats because I was going to get them to do what I wanted them to do. Hang up the phone, end of the conversation. Next thing I know, the next day, my phone rings. It was Dan. And he just very simply said, Andy, we don't do it that way. And it was an incredible teaching moment for me because that's not normally my personality anyway, but I was so focused on delivering that you could see where if gone unchecked, that could have led to very bad things down the road where I developed into this highly obnoxious person that no one wanted to be around. And I'm sure a lot of people still think that. And counseled me in that moment and showed me how to lead with humility and the right way to work with colleagues in a way that didn't tarnish not only my reputation, 
but also the reputation of the brand that I was working for at the time. And the truth is, he was 100% right. He could have handled that in many different ways. He didn't yell at me. He wasn't upset. He just gently reminded me that this is not the way that we do it. And I remember that to this day. It was an incredible learning moment for me early in my career, and it's really influenced you know, how, I've, how I try to work with people. I won't say I always succeed, but how I try to work with people moving forward. And so it was a great learning moment for me. We all have those moments in our career where we just make a mistake. We just don't handle something the right way, or we, we failed to do what you know should have been done. And if we're lucky, we've got bosses like Dan. Yeah. Right? And that's why people like you and me, Andy, wanted to work for Dan over and over again. That's right. That's right. Yep, like, we came back. We kept coming back. I'll leave you with this story that he told me once at Bobby Vans. We were talking about something. I'm not sure how it came up, but I think it shows both real insight into his personality in terms of how ser how he took serious things not seriously, but sort of always managed to come out on top, either by skill or maybe sometimes by luck or happenstance. And so he told me the story that, you know, for those who don't know, he, his family, his father traveled, they grew up in Saudi Arabia, and he came back to Connecticut to go to boarding school for his senior year, I think, of high school, if not maybe his junior year. And so while he was there, I think his parents were still overseas and his mom would send him money as a senior or junior, whatever it was, to apply for colleges. And he had, for whatever reason, was convinced that he was going to go to Duke. I think he was a legacy or his family, someone in his family had gone there or something. So he was convinced he was going to go to Duke. And he took the money his mother sent and used it on other things he wanted to spend money on. Because <laughs> he was convinced he had the Duke application wrapped up. Well... Lo and behold, he applied to Duke and he did not get in. And so all of a sudden he had to scramble and he talked to the guidance counselor and the guidance counselor as Dan, as a charm, this again was charming and just a great person to talk to, had probably, I'm sure, a charm the guidance counselor, told him the story. The guidance counselor said, hold on, I think I have a buddy who is in admissions at Franklin and Marshall. He called the friend and basically got in on the spirit, which is where he met obviously where he met Matt Gelman, who brought him to eventually brought him to Washington and brought him to all of our lives. And I think of that story both as just classic Dan, like trying to see around the corner, playing fast and loose with the situation, but at the end of the day, having enough wherewithal to pull it back together and, you know, deliver a result that worked for him and obviously worked for all of us. And I, I thought during the memorial service, I thought of this story because it's obviously total sliding doors, fate, whatever you want to call it, that it was F&M where he met this guy, Matt, who then ended up coming to Washington and getting Dan the job and allowing him to rise up the ladders of power. And I think to myself, if he'd gone to Duke, like he'd probably be some salesman somewhere and we never would have known him, but he would have been equally successful. Oh, you're so right. We won that lottery. When that coin flipped and it led to the, the sliding door subway coming our direction, we got so lucky. Exactly. I think the really beautiful thing about our business of government and politics is that it's such an intense experience. It's intense and active and consequential. And if you're lucky, that context will lead you to work with people who are great, like Dan. And in these situations of very high stress, where your work is transparent to the public and something that's reported on day in and day out, 
you, if you're lucky, you can work with someone who's, who, whose wisdom you seek out, who you draw strength from. And that was Dan. So really anyone who's in our business knows they're just, you're lucky enough to work with certain people who make really difficult and intense experiences better just by being around them. And the business kind of filters out a shrinking violet. None of us are like sheep, like lost in a field. Like everyone like brings their own thing and it's filled mostly with strong, gutsy people. But even in that context, you need someone like Dan to corral all that and help be, to help center things. And as I said, just to be someone you can look to for direction and, and draw strength from. And that was him. Yeah, there you're it's such a good point about the business being a real crucible at times of pressure and expectations, deadlines, and the world is watching times. And certainly some of the things that you and Dan and were working directly with the president on had the eyes of the world on you all. And yet Dan never cracked. He also some people in our business under pressure start yelling at other people. Dan didn't do that. Dan was the type of guy who always was, well, very intense, always good to be around. And when you hit a hit a roadblock, it was, okay, what do we do now? Yes. Life was meant for people like Dan to a degree that it isn't, that I wouldn't even really say like for myself, where I'm in this business, I keep doing it. But there's so many points at which I, I'm a good example of someone who kind of like self-medicates by complaining, this is awful. This guy is killing me. He's the worst. <laughs> like I, I've often said, I couldn't be on the subway next to someone I've never met before for three minutes. And within like three minutes, I'll be complaining about one of the people I worked for in politics. <laughs> and the person will be like, I don't know you. But, but Dan, truly, like life was meant for people like that who just, oh, wow, this is intense. It looks pretty, pretty rough in there. Let's get in there. And that was his thing. And Ron Emanuel had a really lovely sentiment after he had heard Dan passed and was putting a, together a statement to release. But he had, he recalled like a very specific story of being in his office while he was chief of staff at the White House. Dan was there and we were going over like a very naughty legislative problem. And it was very like fraught with like all kinds of pitfalls and what the difficulties were. And we were going around the table. And uh, Ram said he was, he could remember and was moved by the fact that hard charging as he is, he could re remember, wow, this seems like, like daunting. And when he got to Dan around the table, Dan said, look, we're going to get this done. And he said immediately, he was like snapped back into, yes, we're going to get this done. So let's like start at the end when we've accomplished this and then work backwards from there. And to him, that was Dan. And I think that's such a good story and like reflects so accurately on Dan. It was like, look, you're going to, and he was such, you're lucky to meet one person like Dan. And everyone knows like that kind of person, which is just great to be around, makes every such better, uh, easier, helps give you courage. But Dan is also just a singular character too, which is wonderful in any business, particularly in ours, of a person who's like incredibly accomplished, but had absolutely no vanity at all. No interest in particular in promoting himself, like any number of countless people 
who have promoted themselves or had stories written about them who didn't accomplish an ounce of what Dan did. But it was true also personally. He was not interested in... I can remember Dan being next to him in a meeting and looking over. He was easy to needle in this way. And he had on this brilliant green Brooks Brothers tie that Ashley had obviously bought for him and probably put on him before he left the, the house. And I whispered to him, I said, Hank, sharp tie. And he said, what? <laughs> what are you talking? Like, my what? Like, so inconsequential to him. So he was easy to needle that way. And it makes you think like that thing. Of, he was just like such a genuine person through and not capable of being like anything but authentically himself. And in any situation, I'll tell the story about Ram, where we get around this table in this like high level meeting. And he's look, we're going to get this done. I remember going into like Vento about wedding planning. I was getting ready for my wedding in our first year at the White House, as you remember. And just being like, oh, now we got to get like the thing. And he just interrupted and was like, you don't care, really? (laughs) All right. I guess that's right. I can remember John Samuels, our colleague at the Old Ebbett Grill, right across from the White House, agonizing over what beer to pick one night when we were out there after work. And Dad said, after two, does it matter what you're drinking? (laughs) And so it's just, it's not just like the high level stuff. Like he just was very incapable of being anything but but himself. And, And he made you want to be more like that. What am I worried about? And he could just naturally filter away what was unimportant or not meaningful. And that's really what made him a singular person in our business. I just want Dan's children to know just how special their dad was. He meant so much to so many people, and he was particularly important to me. He was like a big brother to me, Jim. He's eight years older than me. Like I said, I met him my first week here in Washington when I was an intern for David Bonnier, who was then the Democratic whip. Dan was working one floor down in the Capitol for leader Gephardt. Um, And as an intern, I had an enormous responsibility. In those days, softball was huge. And my responsibility on Thursday afternoons was to leave the Capitol complex early, fill the cooler up with beer and ice, and go secure a space on the National Mall so that the Cool Whips, David Bonnier's softball team, could do battle against other Republican and Democratic offices throughout the Capitol complex. Dan was a lousy softball player, but a hell of a great companion on the field and the post-game celebrations at the old Hawk and Dove were something that I look forward to every week. At that time, Dan was the deputy floor director for Leader Gephardt. Yeah, he was just a special guy. I admired him. I revered him like a big brother. And he's still the man I aspire to be. He did everything the right way. He was warm. He was kind. He was gracious, courteous, honorable. It's a term that's gone out of favor, but he had class. But I don't think you should mistake any of that for weakness. He was persuasive. He was persistent. When he was working a member for a yes vote on a tough issue, he wouldn't take no for an answer. Dan knew politics was a relationship business, and he taught me that lesson early. No favor was too small for Dan. He was always willing to help, you know, first as a leadership staffer, and then when you and he worked together as President Obama's legislative liaison to the House of Representatives. And I was insanely jealous that you and John Samuels and others got to work so closely with Dan. We we worked together when he was running the Rules Committee 
when I came back to work for uh, Mr. Clyburn, when Democrats finally got the House back in the 2006 elections, uh, yeah. Mr. Clyburn asked me to come back and help set up his whip operation. Dan came back to run the Rules Committee. And for two years, under then-President Bush, we uh, worked with Sp then-Speaker Pelosi on managing that new Democrat Congress. And then when you and he made this transition over to the White House, we worked very closely together for two years to pass an incredibly ambitious legislative agenda through the House of Representatives. He knew members, right? Being on the floor of the House, you get to see these members up close and personal, right? You get to see what makes them tick. Uh, but Dan put in the work, right? He, he knew the members, he knew their districts, he knew their spouses, their spouse's name, their children's name. He was not just a relationship guy, right? He knew substance and in particular process. And that's what made you know Dan a particularly effective staffer in the house. He was he's a man of the house, a house guy through and through. My friend and mentor, the late great John D. Dingle, had a lot of great sayings. But the Dingleism that makes it into political science textbooks is his adage: "If I let you write substance and you let me write process, I'll screw you every time." And Dan knew that. He understood. He took that lesson to heart. He understood the House is an archaic institution with a particular set of rules and procedures spelled out in Jefferson's manual. And Dan became a master of legislative process, first as a leadership staffer and then the de facto parliamentarian for the Democratic caucus. And he took that understanding of the House and used it to advance President Obama's agenda. And it was just extraordinary to watch him work up close. Um, You're so right. Like he... That expertise of process was bedrock. He built everything else about Dan, the relationships, the demeanor, right? All of the other things that, that made him so successful and well-liked and genuine as a person. It all sat on a foundation of being the top expert that members wanted access to and staff needed access to because we needed him. Yeah, 100%. But, we, you know, he taught me a very important lesson, and that was this is a relationship business. There was no favor that was too small for Dan Turton. He was always willing to help. He knew Washington was too small to burn bridges. He was always building. He knew that today's staff assistant would be a chief of staff or a key a person five years down the line. And he was, I, I describe him as a big brother to me. Guess what? He had big brothers and, and or little brothers and little sisters throughout this city, but he took time to mentor. There wasn't a big life decision or a, a big issue that I didn't, that I would make unless I got Dan's counsel first. I wanted to find out what he thought. And so many others had that type of relationship with Dan. It's, he was always giving. And the other gr a great lesson was he, in addition to being a big brother, he had this incredible network of mentors in Washington. And that yes. was also a really valuable lesson to seek out people who came before us, right? And to get their good advice and to understand. Dan was always at the center of power. He knew what power was, how to exercise it. The next section of stories you're going to hear relates to how Dan conducted himself as a professional. We honor staffers on this show. And as you'll hear in the stories that follow, Dan was a staffer of the highest order, both in terms of how he conducted himself and how he led others. The first time I think I actually formally met him in person was at the Democratic Convention in 2000 in L.A. And I was at some, one of these after parties. 
and standing in the back of the crowd. And so was this other guy. And we just started talking. And when we introduced ourselves to each other, I was really like, oh shit, you're Dan Turton, the Dan Turton. Um, <laughs> oh man, it's Dan Turton. Um, it's because Dan, this is, mind you, a time before anyone had a smartphone, before anyone had a Blackberry even, the house floor in Washington where Dan worked and ran floor operations for then Democratic leader Gephardt really dictated the schedule of all of Washington. Members of Congress had to go to Dan to understand, hey, can I leave and go to my dentist appointment or take my constituent meeting? Committee chairs had to come and say, can I reconvene my markup or my hearing? And really the only way to get that information was to be on the House floor or if you were in your office picking up a hardline telephone and calling the Democratic cloakroom and asking them, and they'd be annoyed because they got a thousand of those calls. But Dan was an innovator. He would run to his desk periodically during the day and send out a floor update. And he was really, he really pioneered that, and that was cutting edge technology at the time. But it obviously came from Dan Turton. And at some point I got added to the list, which was a big deal. And I felt like I had arrived in a sense. So anyway. When I met him, I realized, oh, we'd been in meetings together, but I didn't know that was you. Dan thought he was a really big deal, and he was. So anyway, that was the first meeting, but it just struck me how kind kind he was and humble at that moment. I expected this guy with his big name, so well-known to everyone in town, would have a little bit more of an ego, and there was none. That email in my office, we would refer to it as a Turton. Did you get a Turton? What is going on? Has anyone gotten a Turton? Yeah, exactly. Because um, if you hadn't been at your desk, you had to ask somebody if you were like running back to your desk, like, did you email yet? There are so many things that there's a couple that kind of, that really jump to the surface. And one is such an insider thing, but there's this photo, there's a coffee table book that was produced for the Obama team that got to work on the Affordable Care Act. And it's just filled with kind of White House photos from that period of time. And there's just, just this extraordinary photo if I'm remembering correctly, of it's the president and some of his senior advisors, and they're all kind of celebratory, was in the middle of trying to get votes. And Dan's in the photo. And despite all this kind of things going around him, he's on the phone and he looks like he's concentrating. And it's just, I think the photo kind of would perfectly encapsulate him. He's like the indispensable staff guy. He's always getting the job done. That's one thing, like he just, there was never any drama around him. He was just, let's just go, let's get it done. And then the other thing is, despite all these stressful situations that he worked on, not only did he keep his cool, but he kept a withering sense of humor and could just crack you up in the most inopportune moments with this kind of little smirk and aside that only you would hear and that would cause everybody else in the room to turn and look at you and wonder why you're laughing. That is so true. He had, you're right, that captures like both the seriousness of what he was about and how committed he was to the job and also the irreverence that he brought to it that would keep us humble and laughing and moving forward through tough times. Yeah, it was like this, like a serious of purpose and never a seriousness of self. Yes. Yes. And Something that he was very serious about was his disdain for the United States Senate. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he, he often would, he would just come in and make the most disparaging remarks. And 
uh, about the, as us Senate folks call it, the upper institution, and would never get let us get away with uh, with any disparaging things we may or may not have said about the House. <laughs> no, he was definitely a man of the people's house, for sure. I'll just say one other thing. I talked about his inclusive leadership style, which again, you know, for me, that was as a woman, as a mom. But I will also say the other big takeaway I had from him was, again, here he was this very senior individual. And just through the prerogatives of his role, he could have claimed a seat at the table, and frankly, any table in the White House throughout that entire time. As I think both you and I benefited from, he he so often pushed his team forward to have those opportunities. In my case, I was the national security person on the team, and God bless him, he had no interest in national security, which worked out fantastically for me because he let me go to everything. I lived in the situation room because he w was happy to push me forward. I think you got plenty of similar opportunities like that on the domestic front. And that is just, again, a, it's such a leadership lesson that I took away from Dan of just always let your people have those moments. You're training them to be better leaders in the future. Dan was obviously a very special person. And we were colleagues in the house, not social friends, but colleagues. And we didn't even work that closely on a day-to-day -day basis, but close enough that I could watch Dan and get a real sense of his abilities, extraordinary talents, and a sense of his character. And that always impressed me. He always seemed like someone others could rely on and someone who always just kept us cool. So in 2008, when President Obama got elected, I was tasked with putting together a team at the White House for Legislative Affairs. And I looked for people who were all extraordinarily talented in their own rights and trying to put together a team. And we had two teams, the House team and the Senate team. For the House team, I needed someone who was, as I say, extraordinary in their own right but then someone who could take all these very talented people on a team and bring out the best in them and have them work together in the most effective way. And I really gravitated to Dan because one, I knew how talented he was, but second, I had really gotten a sense of what a decent person he was and how Going into the White House, what we needed was people we could count on. When the chips were down, you knew the person was going to be there. And Dan, I had no question in my mind about Dan in that regard, that when the chips were down, when the pressure was on, when the president needed something, that Dan would come through and he wouldn't blink. And in my experience with him in those first two years when there was so much going on, that was true every single time. And in all of it, Dan was unflappable. So to me, just the best person that anyone could possibly work with. You know, Phil, when you called me and offered me a job as a member of that team, it was the honor of a lifetime. I was elated and I was so excited about working for you. I didn't yet know that I was also going to be working for Dan Turton. Yeah. And when I found that out, yeah. not only was I so happy about that news, I'll be honest, it I found it a relief. 
Like I thought, oh, because it's a scary job, right. scary circumstances. And I thought, okay, I've got somebody who's going to help me be as good as I can be. Yeah, that's such a good way to put it, Jim. And and the, one of Jan's qualities is he could do that with each person on the team. And he could do it with me as I'm trying to figure out my job. He Dan made everything easier for everyone and never complained, ne never looked to get any attention for what he was doing, just was being the best version of himself and the best person for the president. Yeah. Yeah, he but never preened, he never flexed. He had all these important jobs throughout his career, and it was never about status or power. It was always do the job to the best of your ability. And when times get tough, maybe that means working hard, but that doesn't mean you can't laugh sometimes too. And the uh, and Dan never missed an opportunity to make fun of the Senate. So he did, he did what <laughs> you just said. But was always attuned for any opportunity <laughs> talking about the Senate shortcomings. It was always on message. <laughs> and that's it. In pressure situations, where the outcome isn't clear, someone being able to function at the highest level and also retain a sense of humor and their humanity is very special. And to me, that's one of the things that made Dan very special. Yeah. I'll tell you, one of my favorite memories of Dan wasn't really a work moment. It was something that combined Dan's devotion to family with the White House in this instance. But that's a time where he brought his young children to the Oval Office to meet the president. And I smile every time I think of that memory because his two sons started running around the Oval Office wildly, just having the time of their life like they were at a playground. And most people would be somewhat embarrassed by that because the president was there. And I could just tell in Dan's eyes, he reveled in it. He just really enjoyed his boys being boys, uh, even when they're in the Oval Office. Dan was so special, and I think he was special for a lot of different reasons, and we all experienced him slightly differently. What, in your experience with Dan, made him so special? It was that combination, I think, of his intelligence and wisdom combined with the warmth and the sense of humor. And he could, like, like all of Phil Schlero's team, I will say one characteristic they all had, with the possible exception of Dana Singheiser, and she'll understand why I say this, the ability to just disappear in a room. So I could be in a meeting with Leader Reed, and Sean Marr was in there with me, but where was he? He, was, he blended into the bookcases in there. You were like that. At the appropriate times, you were there, but at other times, you blended in. And that was Dan. He was never having to say, I'm the important person in here, listen to me. He was making things happen in a very quiet, respectful way around members. Um, he loved the House of Representatives. It was just in his element there. In fact, I'm remembering a story where he stepped on a moment of celebration that you and I had. What was that? As you'll recall, you one of the people that you were working with to try to get their vote on the Affordable Care Act was Joe Gow of Louisiana. Oh, yes. You and State I. A representative from Louisiana. And you came to me and you said, what do you think? How about we spend some time with him? And 
I was game and we started going up there. I remember it being typically Monday nights when they came back into town and we had to sneak around because he didn't want everyone to see him meeting with us. That's right. We did it a number of times. I talked to him on the phone a number of times. And then when the House took the vote that November, what I remember is being outside the House chamber and seeing those doors, those louvered doors come hurling out. And behind it was Speaker, not Speaker, but Leader Boehner with his popping his cigarette in and <laughs> like this. And reporters were following him saying, did you know about Joe Gow? Did you know about Joe Gow? And I think you and I might have been high-fiving at that point and <laughs> hugging. And, and Dan comes over to me and he says, hey, come with me. And so I thought, oh, he's taking me to see the speaker or something important to get like at a boy, at a girl kind of thing. So I'm following him down and fixing my hair and everything. And he goes over to the, between the House and Senate, to the rotunda there, and he goes, that way. <laughs> Go to the Senate. He points me to the Senate and I, because... Don't yep. waste time, high five, and now you got to get it done over there. So that was that's an example of Dan's sense of humor and his intelligence. And, and another example of that after the bill passed that March, and this is an example I think of his both his intelligence and his clear he was clear eyed about what we could get done and what we couldn't get done in a way that uh, made a big impression on me because at the time I was really, I suppose, in denial and hoping he was wrong. But after the bill passed, we started these meetings in the White House twice a week of all the departments involved in implementation of the Affordable Care Act, writing the regulations and all that. And one of the initial meetings, I had everyone bring their list of technicals. When a large bill passes, as typically there's a bill a couple of years later, maybe even a year later, that attempts to fix things that were unintended, glitches or typos, whatever. Yep. So I had the Treasury Department and IRS and the Labor Department and HHS, and we were going through these big lists of things. And Dan stopped by the meeting, and he said, what are you doing? And I told him, I was very cheerful, he goes, are you serious? <laughs> and he took me outside the room. He said, look, fine, you lead your meeting, but just so you understand, they're never going to do this. They're never going to talk to us. They're ne this isn't going to happen. Great that you're doing it, but just so you understand. Yeah. He, I always loved his candor. You know, yes. he was always yes. very direct. And the other thing that you said that I just want to dwell on for a moment is he's operating in a world in which, within the White House environment anyway, there are lots of people who know Congress. Right. Probably more than half the building worked in Congress. Don't fail to mention our chief of staff at the time. That's right. Our chief of staff had been, served in Congress, just there, as had served. the president and vice president. Right. And, right. Right. And he's and Dan is in an operation, the legislative affairs function, where that's our jobs. We are. That's what our job is to be expert in. And even among that crowd, he was elite. His understanding of members on an individual basis, on what motivates them, on what they need to hear, as well as like the ebbs and flows of the institution, he knew so well that it was almost instinctual for him. And things yes. that like would stymie us and we'd be like, blah, 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 he would just see clearly. No, he didn't understand it. I remember, so Rahm would have, Rahm Emanuel would have these meetings in the chief of staff's office after the 
I've forgotten the time frame, but let's say it was an 8 a.m. meeting where he'd go around the room. Then he'd have an 8.30 meeting in his office just on the ACA, and it was featuring Dan and Sean Marr and Phil, typically. And maybe you would come from time to time. But, and the only time Ron ever was silent was when Dan was speaking. Mm. He wasn't interrupting. He was listening to him, which I just think you have to say is very unusual. <laughs> And remember that, that Ron had been up there probably at 6 a.m. that morning because he went up there every morning famously, worked out at the gym and talked to whoever Murphy from Pennsylvania, Republican, that he thought could be there. And he was giving me instructions to go meet with him. So he knew everything and everyone. And he was silent when Dan was speaking. Yes. And that is probably a legacy of Ron's time as a member in the House. There, We've talked a lot about Dan's time in the White House. His time as a staffer on the Hill in the leader's office, as the floor director, he was a staffer who on the floor would be invited into the member conversations. They would be seeking him out for advice and guidance. And lots of members would only listen when Dan was talking. It's exceedingly rare. But that's but he had that stature and reputation before he came to the White House. It's really unusual to find in one person that level of, like, uncanny amount of knowledge and yet filled with humor and vibrancy and candor and a terrific colleague. And a lack of cynicism. Yes. Again, I never heard him. He always believed we could get it done. He believed members could be there. He was very respectful to them and of their constraints and of their constituencies. You know, one thing, Jim, I thought about is he, we obviously spent a lot of time traipsing back and forth in the Capitol together. And he told me, and you would know whether this is right or not, there's a few people who are non, have never been elected a member, but they're allowed to go up in the rotunda. And he had that, whatever that status was. And he used to tell me that he would take me up there someday. We never had time when we were up there together. And I reminded him of that when I saw him in October. He said, the offer's still there. So if I ever do get to go up there, you know who I'm going to be thinking about. I'm so glad you mentioned that. He, I think the technical term is he was made an officer of the House. At the end of each Congress, there's a piece of legislation that is passed or a House resolution that is passed that can name certain people officers of the House. And what they will do is sometimes put staffers who have just been par excellence on that list. And... When they are made officers of the House, they get lifetime floor privileges and privileges as a member of Congress would, like access to the rotunda. He could park his car in the member lot right next to the Capitol. He's actually the only person I know in Washington who has them. There are others, but he's the only person I personally know. But someone as young as he was? Yes. Yes. Someone as young as he. And he never bragged about it. You know what I'm saying? Never flaunted it. It only came out because I was talking about, I really love to see that someday. How do I ever do that? And he said, and then he told me, but he didn't give me all that background. Right. If they right. passed a resolution, you said, I could do that sometime. We don't have time today, but let's do it. And we, ah. yeah, yeah, what an amazing legacy. Yes. That's the ultimate tip of the cap that, that Congress can give to one of its, one of its staffers. And he earned it. Sure did. First, let me just say that Dan was truly one of the best. He was incredible. He was down to earth, affable, 
brilliant, uh, such a persona that that really drove so much of our policies and priorities for the Obama-Biden administration and really grateful for everything that he was able to do on behalf of not only the president, but when he was in Congress and, of course, for our country and for the world. He just truly was a, a beautiful soul. When we worked together in White House Ledge, we had very early meetings, first at 7 a.m., then 7.30, and often either in the sit room or elsewhere. And I would try to get there as early as possible because, look, you just you've got to be on time for those meetings. You have to get all the intel. And I remember that there were times when sometimes Dan and I were the only two in the room <laughs> very early before anyone else got there right on time. And it was just in those moments where he would take the time to say, hey, Nicole, what's going on? How are you? And the nervous junior staffer that I was, I was more junior than Dan, of course, I would often keep it short because he was so busy. And I would say, things are well, but again, keep it short. And I just remember his graciousness and his general engagement and presence for me and for so many others. So it was just a special thanks to him and his family for all of those times that he was present. And then I think the second story is actually when Dan was transitioning from White House Ledge. I tried to take the time to to catch him because I was also going to be transitioning into the team at, at one point and asked for his advice. And he specifically said, you should call the members by their first name. I do. And I thought, oh my God. You call them by their first names? <laughs> How do you, like, who is this magnanimous individual that calls Congressman X by their first name? And I thought, wow, you would be Dan Turton. Just, again, one of the best among us. He led by example and truly was able to show up in places that many of us dare to go. He showed up and almost owned it. And so just a special thing. Uh, Dan was, to many of us of a certain age, the voice of God, if you will, in email form, coming in the emails from Gephardt's office telling us the floor schedule and how our life would be run. And I had seen these emails for many years. And at some point, and I don't have any good memory, unfortunately, of when it occurred, but I remember like reaching out to him and just meeting him. And the thing that struck me Certainly now looking back at it, maybe not at the time as like a 20-something-year-old staffer, because even though we all thought we knew so much of the time, we really learned more looking backwards, was how humble and approachable he was. I think in Washington, you have many people who do many important things, and some of them think that they have become as important as the job is, so to speak, right? Dan was just very humble, very approachable, and never... While he had some of the biggest jobs in Washington, you never would have known if you just met him and didn't know who he was. He doesn't, he never came across as that, you know, too big for his britches personality, if you will. And I love what you're saying about when you first met him, because you're so right. Like he had important jobs, certainly from the time I met him. And yet he could meet someone of much lower on the professional ladder. And he treated them like they were just as important as the CEO or the chief of staff or the member. Totally. He was he was genuine and he was genuinely 
he was just, he didn't take himself seriously. And even though to your point, he had all these serious jobs, I think he kept like the joke is on them for hiring me perspective, (laughs) obviously incredibly smart. And Dan and I used to, we would talk frequently about outside the box, off the wall, legislative, political ways to get things done. And it'd be like, if we do this and he'd be like, what about that? And you just, it was all high level, could never happen in a million years because you would need the entire universe to align in the right way. But it'd be like, what if we think about this thing and. And that's why, like, also, if you think, I don't know if you remember, but like when he was working for Gephardt and we were in the minority, we filed these like motions to bring back the motions to proceed and the, and then the other stuff procedurally. And he was notorious for finding these like really obscure, really politically challenging votes for like tough Republicans, to make tough Republicans. And they were always called like the Dan Turton special. It was the way to screw the opposition for lack of a better word. And so it was, of course shocking at his memorial service to hear that he'd come to Washington as a Republican, given how somewhat partisan, although he was obviously an honest broker, and I'm sure many of your guests have talked about that, but to hear it. And at the memorial service, I had a Democrat to my right and a Republican to my left. Yeah. He he was, to your point, an honest broker, and he people on the other side of the aisle worked well with Dan. Your point about members seeking him out on the floor of the House of Representatives, you really, you could see right in front of you someone with, at minimum, like quizzical look on their face or like look of concern, look around for a source of comfort or information, make their way over to Dan, slowly but surely start like nodding their head as Dan explained what was going on, and then come away feeling better. And then as uh, everyone does, starting to tell everyone else what they know about what, what Dan said, your point about exactly. the president is so interesting. Just because of like the vagaries of the business, it's a little less precise than probably, but the the biggest thing for all of us was passing healthcare. And the that last weekend when the vote was going to be on Sunday, as the vote isn't an arbitrary thing, you set it as you think you you have the votes uh, to do it, if you're doing it the right way. So the vote for healthcare was set for a Sunday night, and that's about the point at which the, it was right, uh, which is an alchemic thing. You kind of have to divine through all of the pieces of information, like when the experience you have, when is the, the right time. It just so happened that weekend, the Saturday before the healthcare vote, Phil Shalero, our uh, esteemed legislative affairs director, who was really one of the, the few most important people to passage of healthcare, was going to be out all day because his wife was had a medical uh, pre- previously scheduled medical issue they had to attend to, but it was going to cause him to be with his wife all day. And the president insisted Phil Phil do that. It was also the day of Ram's son's bar mitzvah, and then there were a couple of other sort of like key staffers where it was the same sort of thing, but once in a lifetime kind of things that kept them away. And just through those random circumstances, Dan and I were like home alone with the president. We get called down to the Oval the Friday night before by Phil. And that's the point at which we learned Phil wasn't going to be around on Saturday. We knew Ron was going to be really off the field for the day. And Dan was just ready to, to roll. And we explained to the president what needed to happen like the next day. Phil said, here's what they're uh, going to do and look to them for information throughout the day. And we were leaving and said, and the president said, all right, let's get it done, guys. And Dan turned around and said, we will, sir, with the biggest smile on his face. And I just thought, thank God I'm here with him. 
And I didn't want to think of what it would be like to be not there with him. So the Saturday came around day before the, the vote. And one of the pieces of business that needed to be taken care of was up on the hill. And Dan went up to, to do that. So he was up in the Capitol. The president came down. I went in to give him the lay of the land for the day again and uh, tell him where Dan was and what he was doing. And that that was the sort of the first hurdle we needed to get over of the things we needed to accomplish before we got to the vote the next day. I went back to my desk. Dan phoned in not much long after that and reported in that he had been completely successful in doing everything we needed to do. So I went down to report that to the uh, the president and he like took the information in and nodded and smiled and looked at me and he was so happy to he's happy to hear the news, but he was the kind of leader who was happy for his team too. And he was so happy for Dan. And I said, yeah, Dan really is the greatest. And he said, we're so lucky to have him, aren't we? And we were saying, like, I said, this is a great reflection on your administration because it's not always the case, not even often the case anywhere, but in uh, in politics and government that the right person will land in the right job. And it was such a beautiful reflection you and I talked about this, Jim, of seeing the people we knew who were great in the business, really greatest in the business, and they all landed in the right spot in Obama world. And I thought, how amazing, like, I get to sit here and talk to the president about how great Dan is. That's what's happening in the president's world right now. And the president had this thing, you may remember, if pumped two fists, yeah, like, it's like a sports thing, like, maybe. And he pumped both fists and he said, Dan like that. And he was happy that we were doing what we needed to do to get towards healthcare, which he has said is the thing he's proudest of. But unquestionably at that point, he was just basking in how great Dan Turton was. And that is so amazing to me. And it's so fitting. It's not surprising that he would, but it's such a lovely reflection of Dan and of, of that White House. It was just a beautiful moment. I'm so grateful I was there for I was lucky enough to have a front row seat to Dan's professional life for a few years, and I learned a tremendous amount by simply observing the way he operated. He was always laser focused on what mattered most, which made him incredibly effective at work. He taught us to listen carefully for what others valued so that we could be successful while also helping others succeed simultaneously. He demonstrated the incredible power of relationships cultivated through honesty and treating people well. Dan also seemed to genuinely enjoy a good challenge viewing even the most difficult circumstances as a puzzle to be solved. Where others might have seen difficulty and hardship, Dan saw opportunities to showcase his and others' talents. And while he took his work as a public servant seriously, he always saw the humor in a situation and brought much-needed levity to our office. It's been said often that Dan made time for everyone, and I can personally attest to this. In the three years I managed his calendar, he had hundreds of coffees, lunches, and informational interviews with everyone from DC power players to interns. He said yes to meeting with literally everyone. He also frequently reminded me that you never knew who your boss might be one day, which I think is great advice. Dan was constantly giving me opportunities at GM that would grow my experience and visibility. He even tried to get me other jobs while I was working for him, which I tried not to take too personally. As I was determined to grow professionally, Dan was equally determined to support me along the way even when it might inconvenience him. This support long lasted long after our time together at GM, and I know he did the same for so many others.
Dan had really high standards, but he was always fair. When he gave us feedback, he did it in such a way where you left feeling motivated to perform better and rise to those standards. He also showed a tremendous amount of grace when mistakes inevitably happen. I once made a huge mistake at work that had both real consequences for our team and personally inconvenienced him a great deal. He would have been right to respond with frustration, but instead showed extraordinary patience and empathy to me that day, encouraging me to stay focused on finding a solution. I watched him handle so many challenging situations at work the same way, and it speaks volumes to his incredible character. Dan's memorial service was such a moving experience in part because the network of relationships I watched him build and maintain was all in one room together, probably for the first time. The visual of just how many people he's made an impact on was amazing. I feel so grateful to have known and learned from Dan and now to be connected to this wider network of the lives he's touched. I remember I was a young staffer. Was the 2000 convention was coming up in Los Angeles and I didn't have two nickels to rub together. But Dan said, just find a way to get out to L.A. and I'll take care of the rest. And so he ended up working at the Democratic cloakroom inside the convention center, like a nerve center. And he was also, you know, working with the, the DNC, the people behind the DNC were in the big room with all the credentials. And uh, I remember thinking, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do out here in Los Angeles. And then there was a knock at the door and it was Dan Turton with a fistful of credentials for every night and the tickets to the hottest parties. And uh, and I was just one stop on his route to make sure he took care of his people. This final section is about what Dan valued above all else, his family. He was a very committed family guy. Uh, you and I both knew and grew up with Ashley, but to whom he was married while we were in the White House when we were on the Hill together. And she was wonderful, incredible human as well. And he loved her dearly, and it was very obvious that she was his top priority above anything else. And when they had kids, it was very obvious they were his top priority and that he derived enormous joy from being a dad and a husband and a family guy. And he, he is interesting. At one point, he said to me, like, basically, hey, ma'am, get your act together. What are you doing? How come you haven't gotten married yet? He knew I was in a serious relationship. And he's basically, don't miss this. And it's, some yeah. people do miss it. And they get caught up in the DC life and other parts of DC life and they miss it. And uh, the way that he had the conversation with me at one point, it definitely was a meaningful moment in, in helping me kind of get my act together and not miss this wonderful part of life. But we all obviously went through the horrible traumatic experience of Ashley's passing and watched Dan go through that and unimaginable pain, but if you, obviously the way he went through that and prioritized his children and his incredible parents coming to, to be a part of that care infrastructure for the family. But if you fast forward, try to get these words out. I remember a conversation I had with him and it was like, he was talking about getting married to Brie and very excited about it and was talking about how wonderful she is. And it just, I don't know how, if he knew how prescient he was, but he said, I want to have a family again for my kids and I want my kids to have a mom. And that was very important to him. And, you know, as important as all the work we did together during those times, like it was those things that are the most important, that human level of Dan, what a just good person he was when he sat down with you to give you advice about life or work, whether it was solicited or him unsolicited jabbing you or teasing you, which he was afraid at which was another way that he showed he cared about you. 
he was very present and it was very obvious just how much he cared about you and, and cared about everybody around him. He really genuinely, genuinely did, but I, it, yeah, obviously can't say enough that it was obvious how much he cared about his family and that was the most important thing to him. Most of all, I want people to know that Dan loved his family. His children were his world. He had so many friends. Matt Gelman, hands down Dan's best friend outside of his family. And that guy was a rock for me through this whole, this loss. I made sure you, as I made sure to pick on him heavily in my remarks. <laughs> as Dan would have wanted. Dan would have wanted. <laughs> there was actually in Dan's obituary, there was a line, a funny line of saying Dan was Gelman's first intern, but not the best. <laughs> yes. And when I read that, it, it made me smile, but it also made me add a few sentences to my speech to get even for Dan. Good work, Don. Yes. But the truth is, I, I always envied the closeness that these two men had. But his, Dan's entire family, just, they've been so wonderful. His wife, Bree, was so warm and kind to me. You know, I, I sent her my speech the day before the service. And the absolute truth is, I was more nervous waiting for her response to that email than I was actually standing up in front of hundreds of people and giving it. <laughs> and yeah. she kind of been... She could have been more kind in her response. I'll save her response, her email, for the rest of my life. His brothers, his parents were so supportive. His brother Josh checked on me many times. His nephew Colby, John, his brother John's son, sent me probably the most heartfelt note I've ever received in my entire life. This is an amazing family. And you were there to just, you couldn't help but smile and cry when you saw his children take that heartbreaking walk up to the podium and my son Shaw spoke about Dan this young man who just lost his father lost his mother when he was a toddler he got up in front of hundreds of people and he consoled us that's what yeah. he did that kid said his father told him after his mother died that a life spent sad is a life wasted and to remember his father in happiness and for all the ripples he sent through our life. It was just beautiful. That really, that probably, that moment probably touched me more than anything that day. And I, I ended my remarks at the service with a thought that I thought maybe I'd share with you because it's a little bit in the spirit of what his son said. But yeah, Dan Turton, he was a giant who left his mark on this world and he left his mark on me. When I heard the news that he was gone, I thought that if ever there were proof that life wasn't fair, this was it. And to be sure, it's not fair what these children have had to endure. But it occurred to me that the really unfair thing would have been not having had the chance to know and love Dan Turton for the time that we did. Mm. Oh, Don, that is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And your eulogy was extremely touching and moving, but I want you to know it was helpful. Like, it helped me. It helped, I think, everyone who heard it. Because you were able to put to words and paint for us a portrait of Dan that lived up to Dan. And that's hard to do. He's every bit as great as the stories and our recollections represent. And if we're lucky, we capture how he really was. 
and I share your, your desire to really be thankful for the time that we had with him because we're better for it and we're just going to miss him.